Hello everyone, and welcome back. It is good to see you all, I hope you're doing well, and uh, I hope that you will join me tonight for the first stream of the final part of this series. Does that feel weird? We've only got, including today's stream, we've only got three more streams of this. That includes today. Ugh. It's wild. It doesn't feel great, frankly. I'm gonna miss this one. And another strange thing is that it feels like this one has taken a lot longer than the ones in the past, right? For whatever reason, it felt like Percy Jackson moved really quickly. Um, Harry Potter moved at, I guess, the uh, Harry Potter moved at a pace that set my expectation for what pace feels like, so I can't really compare that one. But then uh, uh, Percy Jackson sort of felt like it went on for a pretty long time, and then this one feels like it's been a long one, which is fantastic. I've been really pleased with it, so I've no complaints here. You'll hear nary a complaint from me. Fantastic. Proteus Spade says, uh, I think because the Hunger Games changes so much. Big overlapping arcs all over the place. Definitely possible. The 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 sweep of this series, um, it, it definitely brings us places. New places that we, we spend some time digging into and then we're launched into somewhere else. Whereas, I think with Percy Jackson, we would go plenty of places, but we didn't find ourselves really digging in very much. Um, you know, the only places we really stayed, it, it was kind of a, like, a long, long road trip, or a series of five road trips, I suppose you could say. Um, that's what it felt like to me, anyway. But, uh, yeah! Um, I see Jade. Jade! You're on day shift now. Is that gonna be for a long time? Is that, uh, just for, for right now? Uh, either way, I'm really happy to have you here. Uh, it's been fantastic to have you in the past, and I'm glad to have you back. Um... Uh, let's see. I've got a few things that I wanted to mention today, so I've got a little list. Oh, isn't he cute? He's got a little list of things to say, because he can't remember all of them. He doesn't write it down on a little list. Um, first of all, um, just uh, very casually, I wanted to make mention that uh, I'm doing some terrain stuff. If y'all like uh, crafting stuff, if you like uh, especially tabletop crafting, um, I'm making essentially a little haunted house looking thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can find that over in Discord. I'm posting like progress pics every step of the way. Um, it, in reality, it is supposed to be the projection house for a drive-in movie theater um, because I'm going to be running something for. Uh, I got hired to run something for a bachelor party. Uh, any of you who are familiar with Kids on Bikes, it's an RPG that's designed to sort of. Uh, if if D and D is you're playing Lord of the Rings, then Kids on Bikes is you're playing Stranger Things. And uh, it's going to be a ton of fun. I'm very excited for it. But my big finale event is going to be at a drive-in movie theater uh, based off of a drive-in theater called the Mission Tiki drive-in theater. Um, and it's super cool. The pictures do not do it justice, but actually being there with that projection house, uh, shedding light off in four different directions with the different screens on all edges. Um, it was extra magical when I was there. I've only been there once, but it was while the hills were on fire. And so if I just moved, you know, if, if I walked about 50 yards to the left and looked behind the screen, uh, the hills were totally on fire. And so it was, uh, it was a, just a very memorable night, even if the movie wasn't terribly memorable. Um, second, while we're on the subject of tabletop RPG stuff, y'all may know that uh, I have got this, I've got this little place where we like to hang out on Wednesdays called the Realms of Recidus. It is our own sort of homebrew world universe that we have been adventuring in for uh, 
essentially like a campaign and a half-ish. I don't know precisely where we're at in our campaign right now, uh, percentage-wise, but... We've had a ton of fun there. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, Y'all have contributed so much to the lore. Uh, We are really, this second campaign is digging in a ton to a lot of the lore that Death Metal Dahlia came up with. Uh, And so Dahlia, if you're hearing this later, I appreciate you a bunch and uh, I hope you've had a chance to duck in on those uh, Wednesday VODs because um, all of the different vampire houses and uh, lichen tribes and clans, it's been absolutely fantastic. And I want y'all to have a chance to dive in there a little deeper. I mentioned this yesterday, but I've got this project that I have been waiting to deploy until the time felt perfect. But it's one of those projects where I waited long enough for a perfect time, I realized it wasn't coming. And so now I've just decided to, you know what, set a darn date on it. So in two weeks, we will have the soft opening of the Realms of Recidus roleplay server. Now, this is going to be over on Discord as well, because I think it's a a great platform for things like this. Uh, We're going to have different channels dedicated to uh, the different places that we are going to adventure. Uh, I'm going to do a soft open to begin with uh, for a very specific adventure, and then we're going to open it up into the wider world. I'm going to give some guidelines, but y'all are going to be able to create your own characters, and I intend to run adventures over in there. Um... Uh, we will have, (laughs) I I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, on Wednesdays right now, chat all together plays a character named Igor. He's a, a little ghost lad and uh, we've had a ton of fun with that, but I want y'all to be able to create whatever sort of characters you wish to create. And, uh, I'll be posting about world events over there, uh, because I, I generate those anyway over on my end for campaign planning purposes. Um, and maybe, in addition to the things that are going on in our campaign, there are other things going on out in the world elsewhere. So, I'm really looking forward to running adventures with, uh, groups of y'all there. Um, uh, I think it's gonna be a ton of fun. They're probably gonna be, uh, a little bit more pared down, um, compared to how I run adventures on stream. Uh, it's not gonna be quite identical where we do every single thing moment by moment, but... We're going to run adventures. I want to see where your characters go. What happens to you? Uh, Who do you meet with? What do you do? Um, Jade says, oh man, I can play a fantasy me. Hey Jade, you absolutely can. Uh, I am terribly excited about this. And as I mentioned, we're doing a soft open first and then we're going to open it up to the wider realms of Versetus. And for this soft open, for this very first thing, I want y'all to be thinking about the following. What sort of character would you want to play aboard an airship. There it is, there's your little hint. I'll be talking more about this in the coming weeks. Uh, But two weeks, the 17th, uh, on Wednesday the 17th, I'm gonna be opening up that uh, RP server and we're gonna have some fun in there. It's gonna be a good old time. So on the 17th, come hang out. Uh, Number three on our list, and this is one that I'm sure many of you have been anticipating. I'm sure this has come up. Are y'all interested in the results of the vote? I'm going to guess that the answer is yes. The results of this vote for our next flying sidecar series. What are we going to be reading next? Lord of the Rings. I'm committing to it. The, uh, for a long time, it was not on the list at all. Um, It was just something that I didn't think I could fully commit to. But now, I think I'm feeling ready for it. I'm, I'm feeling ready for it. I'll talk about why in just a minute for our fourth and final item on my list. But uh, The Lord of the Rings, by a narrow margin above 
um, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or I should say Chronicles of Narnia, um, by a narrow margin, The Lord of the Rings has won. Now, uh, as I've mentioned before we voted, we're going to be doing uh, votes in the future once we finish the first Lord of the Rings book to decide are we going to continue with this or are we going to jump over and read something else instead. I think that is going to be a, a good way to keep up with our attention spans for specific books and specific series. Um, we are probably going to be doing this for most of our series in the future, just to make sure that we are uh, still enjoying everything that we want to enjoy. Um, because they're a lot of fun, they might not be what everyone expects, and so I want to I want to go ahead and uh, make provisions for that. But y'all, I'm super excited. Hogwarts hippies feeling it. Uh, Christy Abundus, which by the way, welcome. Um, welcome, Christy. Good to have you here. Uh, Proteus Spade says, y'all, buckle up. The book hobbits are so much more sarcastic little brats, and I love it. A lot of character, which, I mean, they did a good job in the movies. Uh, we're going to find, I think, that uh, the the film adaptations of The Lord of the Rings are, I mean, kind of the best example of film adaptation, um, especially of a, a widely loved story. Um I've got more to say on, on like, the, the translation thing, but that's for a different discussion. Um, and so, as I mentioned, this has not been on the vote in the past. I've kept this off the vote because I did not feel ready to commit to that. And I want to remind you all the reason why I feel like I am ready to commit to something as big as this. And that is because of our patrons. I want to say thank you so, so much to uh, all of the folks who, uh, for for you, you folks who are subscribed here uh, with Prime or uh, via Twitch subscription, I appreciate you as well. But the patrons um, who join in over on Patreon, y'all are the ones that help me to decide how I am going to be able to spend my time, whether or not I'm going to be able to dedicate time to this because uh, I can rely on that every single month. Uh, that has been super important to me, super helpful. And I want to thank all of my patrons. I am very, very thankful to you. And that has made me think of something because I'm aware of how things are in the world here today. And like I said, this is the last and uh, this is the last thing on my list before we uh, jump into today's stream. But it has reminded me... Um, as I've been thinking about how thankful I am for y'all, uh, all of you good folks who are over on Patreon, it has reminded me that um, I, I know how tough it is right now for lots of folks. And I've mentioned it in the past, I know, but I wanted to mention it again just for anyone who is concerned about it or, or anxious. I, as thankful as I am, I begrudge no one for having to stop being a patron. Or having to reduce the amount. If, if, if you're, you know, if you don't want to stop completely, but you do want to reduce, none of that uh, will make me feel any less of you. I understand how it is. I understand how things are in the world right now. And so I begrudge you not one inch. If you have to go from some super high tier to absolutely nothing the next month, that is all right. I understand. And you are going to be absolutely as welcome here as you ever were before. All right. Nothing changes in my heart for you. I promise you this. I promise you this. So, uh, if you are, if you're looking to become a patron and you're concerned about like, well, I might be only only be able to do it for like a month or two. A, that's fine. But B, I know some of y'all have been patrons of mine for a long time, and I want to tell you how thankful I am. And my gratitude does not end if you are, uh, if you end up in a position where maybe being a patron doesn't work out quite as well anymore. My love for you diminishes not one ounce. Not one ounce, I say. 
You're absolutely welcome here. And I, uh, Frank, I hope you stick around. I, I don't want anyone to, I, I have read basically on, on social media stuff about people feeling embarrassed about not being able to continue with, um, uh, you know, certain types of support. And that's fine. Uh, if you want to, if you want to figure out a way to make up for it, share my link tree around. Um, share it on social media. Share it with friends. Um, if you're if you're if you're just feeling like, you know, I, I want to keep supporting the channel, but I can't do so on Patreon anymore. There are other ways to do so, and uh, ways that I am I'm very thankful for. But at at no point <laughs> will your diminished uh, sort of patronage uh, affect how I feel about you. As a matter of fact. I, I will just continue to be very, very thankful that for months, or even for some of you for years, you have allowed me to do this as I have, and and to grow it, and to spend time learning things that I didn't know before about editing and about social media. None of which I'm great at yet, but I'm I'm working on it, and uh, y'all have given me a chance to do that. So thank you. All right, and with that. Um, I've seen some excitement for Lord of the Rings, as well there should be. Missy, I'm excited too. Uh, Proteus Spade says, I've only got two words of warning. Tom Bombadil. You'll know 10-year-old me's mental pain soon. Uh, yeah, Tom Bombadil. Frankly, that name, that character is a big part of the reason why I was anxious to do Lord of the Rings early. We'll talk about that more later on. But uh, I am, I'm really excited to read that series. All right. Y'all ready to talk some review? I think it's about time. <laughs> Last time on The Hunger Games. A strong bit of review. Katniss Everdeen lives in the country of Pan Am, where every year they hold the Hunger Games, where they pit the districts against one another by having them send in two very young tributes and have all of these tributes kill each other. It's a reminder of the violence of a war that happened 75 years ago, where the, the districts rose up against the capital. Now, well, we've got another uprising. Katniss tried her best um, to simply protect herself, and in the process started this uprising, after that, she tried to put dampers on the uprising because she felt that was the only way to protect her family from President Snow, who swore vengeance if she didn't quell this rebellion. Well, she didn't. Not only that, but at this point in the book, we are now, we being the rebels, I suppose, uh, the rebels have come to control every single district. They are all under rebel control, which leaves just the capital. Um, now, in chapters, let's see, uh, 16, 17, and 18, wait a second, is that right? Right? Yeah, 16, 17, and 18. Okay, I don't know why that, that goofed me out so much. Uh, chapters 16, 17, and 18. Um, chapter 16, Katniss is... Uh, healing from getting shot in District 2. They were able to take the district, but... Well, Katniss got shot. Every time every time Katniss succeeds at something, uh, she gets hurt a little bit more. But she actually kind of feels okay about that, because it means that when she succeeds, it's not other people getting hurt, like it has been for so long. Katniss is trying to deal with having PETA around. He's not well. He has been hijacked. Um, he believes that Katniss is either a mutt or at the very least um, wants to kill everyone uh, and that she is some sort of capital spy or something. They have a wedding in which, uh, uh, let's see, 
Finnick and Annie get married, and uh, there's a little bit of joy in District 13, which there isn't a lot of. District, District 13 is a very regimented place. Um, and uh, as of uh, the end of this chapter, Peta wants to talk to Katniss for the first time. It's been weeks or maybe even months since he had been rescued, and he's been working with psychologists and such here, but he wants to see Katniss for the first time. They have a discussion that does not end well, and Katniss is distraught about this. Uh, she thinks that Peta's kind of really seeing her for how she is now, manipulative and violent, distrustful, deadly. These are what she says about herself. Um, and so she asks to be sent away once more. She wants to go to the Capitol. She wants to be the one to put an end to President Snow but she has not attended any of her training. And so chapters, uh, let's see, 17 and 18 are a lot about her sort of training and trying to get fit for uh, leaving and going to the capital with a, a team of soldiers. Because she's not much of a soldier. She's a fighter, but she's not a soldier. Uh, and there are some important distinctions there, which she learns for her. One of the important ones is she really needs to learn how to take orders. She, I think, barely succeeds and is put on a sharpshooter team with Gale and Finnick and uh, Boggs is there and then some other soldiers as well. Um, and that is where we find ourselves. Joanna Mason is unfortunately deemed unfit for soldiering and uh, so instead is back at the hospital. But Katniss and her team are sent into the capital. Seems to be places where... <sighs> There's not a lot of fighting, not a lot of real action. There's just enough action to film some propos, but they're being kept mostly out of the way. Unfortunately, one of the soldiers, League Two, gets, uh, gets killed by some metal darts. And the replacement sent by President Coyne is none other than an unshackled, unguarded, armed... Peter Malark. A trigger warning for today from Sam. Uh, today's chapters include quite a few references to some pretty graphic violence. As such, if that is something that you are not comfortable with, I may ask you to perhaps leave this one, and uh, if you want to come back next week, I will of course be giving my customary review. Hopefully that will be enough to go on if you are feeling squeamish about this. Chapter 19. I've never really seen Boggs angry before. Not when I've disobeyed his orders or puked on him, not even when Gale broke his nose. But he's angry when he returns from his phone call with the president. The first thing he does is instruct Soldier Jackson, his second in command, to set up a two-person, round-the-clock guard on PETA. Then he takes me on a walk, 
weaving through the sprawling tent encampments until our squad is far behind us. He'll try to kill me anyway, I say. Especially here. There are so many bad memories to set him off. I'll keep him contained, Katniss, says Boggs. Why does Coin want me dead now? I ask. She denies that she does, he answers. But we know it's true. And you must at least have a theory. Boggs gives me a long, hard look before he answers. Here's as much as I know. The president doesn't like you. She never did. It was Peter she wanted rescued from the arena, but no one else agreed. It made matters worse when you forced her to give the other victors immunity. But even that could be overlooked in view of how well you've performed. Then what is it? I insist. Sometime in the near future, this war will be resolved. A new leader will be chosen, says Boggs. I roll my eyes. Boggs, no one thinks I'm going to be the leader. No, they don't. But you'll throw support behind someone. Would it be President Coyne or someone else? I don't know. I've never thought about it, I say. If your immediate answer isn't coin, then you're a threat. You're the face of the rebellion. You may have got more influence than any other single person, says Boggs. Outwardly, the most you've ever done is tolerated her. So she'll kill me to make me shut up? The minute I say the words, I know they're true. She doesn't need you as a rallying point now. As she said, your primary objective, to unite the districts, has succeeded... Boggs reminds me. These current propos could be done without you. There's only one last thing you could do to add fire to the rebellion. Die, I say quietly. Yes. Give us a mortar to fight for, says Boggs. But that's not going to happen under my watch, Soldier Everdeen. I'm planning for you to have a long life. Why? This kind of thinking will only bring him trouble. You don't owe me anything? Because you've earned it. Now get back to your squad. I know I should feel more appreciative of Boggs sticking his neck out for me, but... Really, I'm just frustrated. I mean, how can I steal his hollow and desert now? Betraying him was complicated enough without this new layer of debt. I already owe him for saving my life. Seeing the cause of my current dilemma calmly pitching his tent back at our site makes me furious. What time is my watch? I ask Jackson. She squints at me in doubt, or maybe she's just trying to get my face in focus. I didn't put you in the rotation. Why not? I ask. I'm not sure you could really shoot Peter if it came to it, she says. I speak up so the whole squad can hear me clearly. I wouldn't be shooting Peter. He's gone. Joanna's right. Just be shooting another one of the Capitol's mutts. Feels good to say something horrible about him. Out loud, in public, after all the humiliation I've felt since his return. Well, that sort of comment isn't recommending you either, says Jackson. Put her in the rotation, I hear Boggs say behind me. Jackson shakes her head and makes a note. Midnight to four, you're with me. The dinner whistle sounds, and Gail and I line up at the canteen. Do you want me to kill him? 
he asks bluntly. That'll get us both sent back for sure, I say. But even though I'm furious, the brutality of the offer rattles me. I can deal with him. You mean, till you take off? You and your paper map and possibly a hollow if you can get your hands on one. So, Gail has not missed my preparations. I hope they haven't been so obvious to the others. None of them know my mind like he does, though. You're not planning on leaving me behind, are you? He asks. Up until this point, I was. But having my hunting partner to watch my back doesn't sound like a bad idea. As your fellow soldier, I have to strongly recommend you stay with your squad. But I can't stop you from coming, can I? He grins. No, not unless you want me to alert the rest of the army. Squad 451 and the television crew collect dinner from the canteen and gather in a tense circle to eat. At first, I think that PETA is the cause of the unease, but by the end of the meal, I realize more than a few unfriendly looks have been directed my way. This is a quick turnaround, since I'm pretty sure when PETA appeared, the whole team was concerned about how dangerous he might be, especially to me. But it's not until I get a phone call through to Haymitch that I understand. What are you trying to do? Provoke him into another attack? He asks me. Of course not. I just want him to leave me alone, I say. Well, he can't. Not after what the capital put him through, says Haymitch. Look, a coin might have sent him there hoping that he'd kill you, but Peter doesn't know that. He doesn't understand what's happened to him, so you can't blame him. I don't, I say. You do. You're punishing him over and over for things that are out of his control. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't have a fully loaded weapon next to you around the clock. But I think it's time you flip this little scenario around in your head. If you'd been taken by the capital and hijacked and then tried to kill Peter, is this the way he'd be treating you? Demands Hamish. I fall silent. It isn't. It isn't how he would be treating me at all. He'd be trying to get me back at any cost. Not shutting me out, abandoning me, greeting me with hostility at every turn. You and me. We made a deal. To try and save him, you remember? Hamish says. When I don't respond, he disconnects after a curt, Try and remember. The autumn day turns from brisk to cold. Most of the squad hunker down in their sleeping bags. Some sleep under the open sky, close to the heater in the center of our camp, while others retreat to their tents. League One is finally broken down over her sister's death, and her muffled sobs reach us through the canvas. I huddle in my tent thinking over Hamage's words, realizing with shame that my fixation with assassinating Snow has allowed me to ignore a much more difficult problem. Trying to rescue Peter from the shadowy world the hijacking has stranded him in. I don't know how to find him, let alone lead him out. I can't even conceive of a plan. It makes the task of crossing the loaded arena, locating Snow and putting a bullet through his head, look like child's play. At midnight... I crawl out of my tent and position myself on a camp stool near the heater to take my watch with Jackson. Boggs told Peter to sleep out in full view where the rest of us could keep an eye on him. He isn't sleeping, though. 
Instead, he sits with his bag pulled up to his chest, clumsily trying to make knots in a short length of rope. I know it well. It's the one Finnick lent me that night in the bunker. Seeing it in his hands, it's like Finnick's echoing what Haymitch just said. But I've cast off, Peter. Now might be a good time to begin remedying that. If I could think of something to say, but I can't. So I don't. I just let the sounds of soldiers breathing fill the night. After about an hour, Peter speaks up. These last couple of years must have been exhausting for you. Trying to decide whether to kill me or not. Back and forth, back and forth. That seems grossly unfair, and my first impulse is to say something cutting. But I revisit my conversation with Haymitch and try to take the first tentative step in Peter's direction. I never wanted to kill you. Except when I thought you were helping the careers kill me. And... After that, I always thought of you as... an ally. That's a good, safe word. Empty of any emotional obligation, but non-threatening. Ally. Peter says the word slowly, tasting it. Friend. Lover. Victor. Enemy. Fiancé. Target, mutt, neighbor, hunter, tribute, ally. A lot of the list of words I use to try and figure you out. He weaved the rope in and out of his fingers. The problem is, I can't tell what's real anymore and what's made up. The cessation of rhythmic breathing suggests that either people have woken up or they were never really asleep at all. I suspect the latter. Finnick's voice rises from a bundle in the shadows. Well, then, you should ask, Peter. That's what Annie does. Ask who, Peter says. Who can I trust? Well, as for starters, we're your squad, says Jackson. You're my guards, he points out. Yeah, that too, she says. But you saved a lot of lives in 13. It's not the kind of thing we forget. In the quiet that follows, I try to imagine not being able to tell illusion from reality. Not knowing if Prim or my mother loved me, if Snow was my enemy, if the person across the heater saved or sacrificed me. With very little effort, my life rapidly morphs into a nightmare. I suddenly want to tell Peter everything about who he is and who I am and how we ended up here. But I don't know where to start. Worthless. I'm worthless. At a few minutes before four, Peter turns to me again. Your favorite color is... is green. That's right. Then I think of something to add. And yours is orange. Orange. He seems unconvinced. Not bright orange, but soft. Like the sunset, I say. At least that's what you told me once. Oh. He closes his eyes briefly, maybe trying to conjure up that sunset, and then nods his head. Thank you. But more words tumble out. You're a painter? 
you're a baker, you like to sleep with the window open, you never take sugar in your tea, and you always double knot your shoelaces. And then I dive into my tent before I do something stupid, like cry. In the morning, Gail, Finnick, and I go out to shoot some glass off the buildings for the camera crew. When we get back to camp, Pete is sitting in a circle with the soldiers from 13, who are armed but talking openly with him. Jackson has devised a game called Real or Not Real to help PETA. He mentions something he thinks happened, and they tell him if it's true or imagined, usually followed by a brief explanation. Most of the people from 12 were killed in the fire. Real. Less than 900 of you made it to 13 alive. The fire was my fault. Not real. President Snow destroyed 12 the way he did 13 to send a message to the rebels. It seems like a good idea until I realize that I'll be the only one who can confirm or deny most of what weighs on him. Jackson breaks us up into watches. She matches up Finnick, Gale, and me, each with a soldier from 13. This way, Peter will always have access to someone who knows him more personally. It's not a steady conversation. Peter spends a long time considering even small pieces of information. Like where people bought their soap back at home. Gale fills him in on a lot of stuff about 12. Finnick is the expert on both of Peta's games, as he was a mentor in the first and a tribute in the second. But since Peta's greatest confusion centers around me, and not everything can be explained simply, our exchanges are painful and loaded, even though we touch on only the most superficial of details. The color of my dress in seven. My preference for cheese buns the name of our math teacher when we were little. Reconstructing his memory of me is excruciating. Perhaps it's not even possible after what Snow did to him. But it does feel right to help him try. The next afternoon, we're notified that the whole squad is needed to stage a fairly complicated propo. Pete has been right about one thing. Coin and Plutarch are unhappy with the quality of footage they're getting from the Star Squad. Very dull, very uninspiring. The obvious response is that they never let us do anything but play-act with our guns. However, this is not about defending ourselves. It's about coming up with a usable product. So today, a special block has been set aside for filming. It even has a couple of active pods on it. One unleashes a spray of gunfire. The other nets at the invader and traps them for either interrogation or execution, depending on the captor's preference. But it's still an unimportant residential block with nothing of strategic importance. The camera crew means to provide a sense of heightened jeopardy by releasing smoke bombs and adding gunfire sound effects. We suit up in heavy protective gear, even the crew, as if we're heading into the heart of battle. Those of us with specialty weapons are allowed to take them along with our guns. Boggs gives Peter his gun back too, although he makes sure to tell him in a loud voice it's only loaded with blanks. Peter just shrugs. I'm not much of a shot anyway. He seems preoccupied with watching Pollux, to the point where it's getting a little worrisome when he finally puzzles it out and begins to speak with agitation. You're an Avox, aren't you? I can tell by the way that you swallow. There were two Avoxes with me in prison. Darius and Lavinia, but the guards mostly called them the redheads. They, they'd been our servants in the training centre, so they were arrested too. I, I watched them being tortured to death. She was lucky. They, they used too much voltage on her heart. It stopped beating right off. It, it took days to finish him off. Beating, 
cutting off parts. They kept uh, asking him questions, but he couldn't speak. Just made these horrible animal sounds. They didn't want information, you know. They just wanted me to see it. Peter looks around at our stunned faces as if waiting for a reply. When none is forthcoming, he asks, Real or not real? The lack of response upsets him more. Real or not real? He demands. Real, says Boggs. At least, to the best of my knowledge, real. Peter sags. I thought so. There was nothing shiny about it. He wanders away from the group, muttering something about fingers and toes. I move to Gale, press my forehead into the body armor where his chest should be, feel his arms tighten around me. We finally know the name of the girl who we watched the capital abduct from the woods of Twelve, the fate of the peacekeeper friend who tried to keep Gale alive. There's no time to call up happy moments of remembrance. They lost their lives because of me. I add them to my personal list of kills that began in the arena and now includes thousands. When I look up, I see that it's taken Gale differently. His expression says that there are not enough mountains to crush, enough cities to destroy. It promises death. With Peter's grisly account fresh in our minds, we crunch through the streets of broken glass until we reach our target, the block that we are to take. It is a real, if small, goal to accomplish. We gather around bogs to examine the hollow projection of the street. The gunfire pod is positioned about a third of the way down, just above an apartment awning. We should be able to trigger it with bullets. The net pod is at the far end, almost the next corner. This will require someone to set off the body sensor mechanism. Everyone volunteers, except Peta, who can't seem to quite get a handle on what's going on. I don't get picked. I get sent to Masala, who dubs some makeup on my face for the anticipated close-ups. The squad positions itself under Boggs' direction, and then we have to wait for Cressida to get the cameramen into place. They're both to our left, with Castor toward the front and Pollux bringing up the rear, so they'll be sure not to record each other. Masala brings a couple of smoke charges for atmosphere. Since this is both a mission and a shoot, I'm about to ask who's in charge, my commander or my director, when Cressida calls, Action! We slowly proceed down the hazy street, just like one of our exercises in the block. Everyone has at least one section of the windows to blow out, but Gale's assigned the real target. When he hits the pod, we take cover, ducking into doorways or flattening onto the pretty light orange and pink paving stones as a hail of bullets sweeps back and forth over our heads. After a while, Boggs orders us forward. Cressida stops us before we can rise, since she needs some close-up shots. We take turns reenacting our responses, falling to the ground, grimacing, diving into alcoves. We know it's supposed to be serious business, but the whole thing feels a little ridiculous. Especially when it turns out I'm not the worst actor in the squad, not by a long shot. We were all laughing so hard at Mitchell's attempt to project his idea of desperation, which involves teeth grinding and nostrils flaring, that Boggs has to reprimand us. Pull it together, 451, he says firmly. You can see he's suppressing a smile as he's double-checking the next pod. Positioning the hollow to find the best light in the smoky air, 
still facing us as his left foot steps back onto the orange paving stone, triggering the bomb that blows off his legs. It's always a little wild for me to read some of these big cliffhanger moments uh, and then wait for chat to sort of catch up to it. Looks like Proteus Spade is in here first. Why does she keep doing this? Offhanded right on the end of chapters. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, frankly, in my head, there are, there are kind of two big schools of... Of uh, well, I can't say that in my head there are two big schools of thought, but in my head there are two big classifications of uh, proper formatting for chapters. Here we go. This is a bit of a weird tradecraft discussion, but um, one is you end this, you end a chapter um, every time the situation sort of changes, every time the the, the tone of the scene changes. Um, or you sort of tell holistic stories. I would say. Um, you, you tell sort of like entire stories within a chapter and the, the chapter has a rising action, uh, a climax and a falling action, all of that. I would say that um, we've read two fantastic examples of, of each of these things. Um, the Hobbit is a fantastic example of every single chapter is its own complete story. Very, you, you could almost end the book on any one of those chapter endings and sort of feel like it had wrapped up. Maybe not the entirety, but it, it would feel like something has ended here. This, I would say, is an excellent example of the opposite, uh, where you don't tell full stories, you tell sort of... Uh, it's a little bit more cinematic, if you ask me. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're ending this right as, you know, in the movie version of this, of course, the music changes, the tone changes, the, the style of cinematography changes. Uh, you know, we, we go from, like, pretty static shots of, of these people sort of, like, just laughing, close-ups, to... Uh, uh, you know, raising that frame rate up and um, <laughs> more shaky cam shots, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, Orly Rose says, uh, Tolkien does have one absolute nutso cliffhanger in the Rings trilogy. Yes, he does. He has a couple, but in The Hobbit, uh, he he keeps it a little bit more buttoned up. But yeah, in, in Lord of the Rings, I hope, uh, well, I, I would say exactly what Hogwarts Hippie says, which is, oh, I'm ready for it, Orly Rose. Yes, indeed. Uh, folks, let's talk a little bit about a Chatterbreak question here. Um, I mean, we I, th I think we've already had a bit of discussion about formatting here, so we'll, we'll skip past that one for right now, unless you all want to keep discussing it. Uh, and don't forget, my good people, if at any time you've got something that confuses you or is curious to you or interesting or you've just got questions or you just want to discuss it, go ahead and put it in chat. I typically don't respond in the middle of a chapter, but I will definitely roll that into our chatter break discussions. Um, because, uh, you know, we, I, I want to talk about the things that you want to talk about. I can I can come up with something to chat about, but I want to talk about what you want to talk about. Uh, and as such, let me let me roll back through and see what y'all have been chatting about. Um, well, okay, so popsicles and drumsticks have certainly been on the list, but, but. Orly Rose says, the whole removal of humanity and murder and torture and horror has shown me I might not always want to choose forgiveness and kindness and the high road. 
I think that is another thing that this series has done pretty well. There's always, I, I think having it be inevitable that at every juncture, the 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 good team uh, decides on the honorable thing or the the merciful thing um, or the graceful thing. And I think that, A, I think it comes from a uh, kind of an odd new idea that, um, I guess that that narratives are prescriptive, that they are designed as um, not Bibles, but sort of ethical guidelines that every time we, we write about someone as the protagonist, or even because I think in this one we could we could fairly call Katniss in this one the hero of of this series, right? It's not just the protagonist, but the hero, um, you know, doing very difficult things, etc. I think to depict people like that as constantly being good, I understand why people get this idea that that uh, they, if we are going to uplift someone uh, or highlight someone as uh, deserving the title of hero because of some of the things that they've done, it is. It can be dangerous then also to show them being incredibly flawed, to show, uh, you know, whatever prejudices they have come out of, uh, whatever prejudices that they maintain, because, well, humans are that way. Humans have prejudices, and I think um, it, uh, it, it diminishes somewhat the idea that flawed people can do great things. Um, and unfortunately, I think it does boost the idea that people who are, that that flaws mean one can't be a hero and one maybe shouldn't try, one shouldn't bother. Um, I think that, that sets up a, a bad set of expectations in people's minds, especially people who are trying to do the right thing. So I think it's important that in this series, I've, I've, I think there are a lot of important things uh, and I think there are a lot of great ways in which this series um, depicts certain things, but one of them certainly is this this challenge that that uh, Katniss has, trying to do the right thing, trying to do the thing that she knows is right, even though she desperately does not want to. She knows, in some cases, what people deserve. In some cases, she has she is sure of what people deserve, whether or not she is correct about it. She is sure, um, and. So I think, yeah, the series has done a pretty good job of portraying that. Um, pretty Spade says, I don't think Katniss ever felt like she was capable of love. I think she was so scared of what it would be like to follow love where it leads, to making herself weak, to falling apart like her mother did when her father died. If she lost someone to the idea of having to put kids into the games, she wouldn't allow herself to get into it. That was the way she was with both Peta and Gail. I think she was closer with Peta, but also hard to say how much of that was just sheer trauma bonding and thinking he's a great person. Because yeah, he definitely proves himself as a great person. Yeah, I think this this all this is a depiction of someone who is more complicated than we often get a get a, a picture of, right? We we always get the yeah we get the gritted teeth scene of of like oh I just want to do this bad thing, but oh, I won't. I can't. It would be wrong. People who do good things also do wrong things. And I think to to separate narrative heroes from their humanity like that tends to separate real people from heroes. And to consider the idea of being heroic something that is, is distant and uh, unachievable because, 
well, I've, you know, I'm, I'm not like XYZ character because they always choose to do the right thing and I haven't always chosen to do the right thing. See, we didn't even need a chatter break <laughs> on that one. We just, uh, we just got right into the discussion. Uh, folks, I want to say thank you all very much for joining me. I want to remind you all, uh, we have got uh, some cool projects coming up. Uh, if you want to go over to the Discord, go ahead and use the links command at any time. Um, but this is about to be one of two Discord servers that we've got because, of course, I'm going to be opening up. Uh, we've got a soft opening in two weeks on the 17th. That's a Wednesday. Uh, and then the full wide opening into the Realms of Recetus roleplay server. You are going to be able to create characters. We have been working so hard in putting this this world together with each other. I want to get a chance to go in there and explore it with you. It only seems sensible. So, I'm going to be running adventures in there. I will, uh, even when I'm not running adventures in there, I will keep it updated with world events and what's going on in different places. And uh, uh, perhaps y'all can go on your own adventures in there. Uh, I'm going to be putting sort of, uh, we, we can talk about Iron Sworn and other solo RPG systems that can allow you to sort of make your own adventures. And if you put these adventures in that Discord, well, I would love to follow them and uh, potentially roll them into our campaign. I think that would be very, very cool. If you go on your adventure in the Realms of Recetus server and uh, there is some overlap between what your character's up to and what our characters are up to, maybe they meet. How cool would that be? I think it would be super cool. So head on over to, uh, to the Discord. And uh, like I said, two weeks, soft opening. And for a soft opening, I mean we're going to be opening up a narrow part of it for a very specific adventure. And the character choices I want you to be thinking about, the little clue I've got for you, is airship. Second, we've got the results in from our vote for our next series. We are wrapping up on, uh, on the Hunger Games here, and as such, it seems only right we would talk about what our next series is going to be. And the answer to that question is Lord of the Rings. At long last, Lord of the Rings, it's finally up in the rotation. It is finally time to take that leap and to explore Middle-earth. I hope y'all are excited. We're going to have a lot of discussions about it as we did with uh, The Hobbit. Uh, if you want to find stuff like that, if you want to find, you know, hey, wait, Sam read The Hobbit? Where can I find that? Go ahead and use the playlists command. Uh, that will bring up an additional separate link tree because I know some of my links are kind of all over the place for what media is where. Link tree slash SCS playlists. SCS, of course, short for sidecar stories. Um, link tree slash SCS playlists that will take you to uh, basically all the links for all the uploaded stuff that I've got, including The Hobbit. If you want to sort of uh, get yourself rolled into, uh, rolled into the world of Middle Earth gradually. Hogwarts Hippie says, beyond excited. I'll probably listen to The Hobbit again before we get started on Lord of the Rings. Not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. My good people, let's talk a bit of review and then launch into our next chapter, shall we? I think we shall. Katniss is in the capital. At the very edge of the capital, rather, because she and her team of sharpshooters, which includes uh, Gale and, um, and Boggs and Finnick, and now, most recently, Peta... This little gang of sharpshooters is called Star Squad, and they're only secretly called that because they're more here to film propos than actually achieve mission objectives. So they, they, you know, they they shatter glass out of buildings and stuff, stuff that looks sort of actiony, so that it looks good on camera. Well, in this most recent chapter, Peta is freshly joined the squad, and 
we now have the the tension between these people who don't trust PETA and PETA who doesn't trust anyone else, but especially not Katniss. Some of the other soldiers help to help to uh, kind of mitigate this confusion from him. Katniss has unfortunately been kind of cruel to him. Now, is this understandable, perhaps? But it, it is also objectively true that she has been kind of cruel since he arrived here. Um, she gets a call from Haymitch saying, hey, knock it off, essentially. What would he do if he were in your position? And she admits probably not this and so she she tries she sort of uh you know reaches out try, they, they talk about their favorite colors uh and and Katniss has just enough strength to to do that before having to rush off into her tent but the the other soldiers here are doing what they can to help sort out Peta's head they invent a game called real or not real um wherein Peta will simply state something that he believes to be true and they will say that's real and here's why, or that's not real, and here's what actually happened. Um, and so he is sort of slowly processing. Even the most trivial details will sometimes cause him to stop and consider them for a long time, but he's coming back. Now, at this point, the Star Squad gets picked for an actual mission objective, which is to say um, simply to blow up a specific pod. These pods, remember, are the traps that are set up around um, abandoned districts in the capital. I can't say districts, can I? Um, not in this series. Uh, abandoned neighborhoods in the capital. And so they're trying to take out a specific pod, but remember, they've got all this insider info from something that was stolen, from this uh, stolen data, and so they have to blow up a lot of stuff while also blowing up the right thing, just to make it look like they sort of caught it by accident at random. That's where we're at. Well, almost, because as they're doing so, as they are sweeping this territory for uh, whatever pods might exist... It looks like they've missed something, and what was supposed to be a very quiet but flashy propo run has instead become very dangerous as a sudden explosion takes Boggs' legs. Chapter 20. It's as if in an instant a painted window shatters revealing the ugly world behind it. Laughter changes to screams, blood stains pastel stones, real smoke darkens the special effects stuff for television. A second explosion seems to split the air and leaves my ears ringing, but I can't make out where it came from. I reach Boggs first, trying to make sense of the torn flesh, the missing limbs, to find something to stem the red flow from his body. Holmes pushes me aside, wrenching open a first aid kit. Boggs clutches my wrist. His face, gray with dying and ash, seems to be receding. But his next words are in order. The hollow. The hollow. I scramble around, digging through chunks of tile slick with blood, shuddering when I encounter bits of warm flesh. Find it rammed into a stairwell with one of Boggs' boots. 
retrieve it, wiping it clean with bare hands as I return it to my commander. Holmes has the stump of Boggs' left thigh cupped by some sort of compression bandage, but it's already soaked through. He's trying to tourniquet the other above the existing knee. The rest of the squad has gathered in a protective formation around the crew and us. Finnick's attempt to revive Masala, who was thrown against a wall by the explosion. Jackson's barking into a field communicator, trying unsuccessfully to alert the camp to send medics. But I know it's too late. As a child, watching my mother work, I learned that once a pool of blood has reached a certain size, there's no going back. I kneel beside Boggs, preparing to repeat the role I played with Rue, with the morphling from Six, giving him someone to hold on to as he's released from life. But Boggs has both hands working the hollow. He's typing in a command, pressing his thumb to the screen for print recognition, speaking a string of letters and numbers in response to a prompt. A green shaft of light bursts out of the hollow and illuminates his face. He says, Unfit for command. Transfer of prime security clearance to squad 451 soldier Katniss Everdeen. It's all he can do to turn the hollow toward my face. Say your name. Katniss Everdeen? I say to the green shaft. Suddenly it has me trapped in its light. I can't move or even blink as images flicker rapidly before me. Scanning me? Recording me? Blinding me? It vanishes, and I shake my head to clear it. What did you do? Prepare to retreat! Jackson hollers. Phoenix yelling something back, gesturing to the end of the block where we entered. Black, oily matter spouts like a geyser from the street, billowing between the buildings, creating an impenetrable wall of darkness. It seems to be neither liquid nor gas, mechanical nor natural. Surely it's lethal. There's no heading back the way we came. Deafening gunfire as Gale and League One begin to blast a path across the stones toward the far end of the block. I don't know what they're doing until another bomb, ten yards away, detonates, opening a hole in the street. Then I realize this is a rudimentary attempt at minesweeping. Holmes and I latch onto Boggs and begin to drag him after Gale. Agony takes over and he's crying out in pain and I want to stop to find a better way, but the blackness is rising above the buildings swelling, rolling us like a wave. I'm yanked backward, lose my grip on Boggs, slam into the stones. Peter looks down at me. Gone. Mad, flashing back into the land of the hijacked, his gun raised over me, descending to crush my skull. I roll. I hear the butt slam into the street, catch the tumble of bodies out of the corner of my eye as Mitchell tackles Peter and pins him to the ground. But Peter always so powerful and now fueled by Tracker Jacker insanity, gets his feet under Mitchell's belly and launches him further down the block. There's a loud snap of a trap as the pod triggers. Four cables, attached to tracks on the buildings, break through the stones, dragging up the net that encases Mitchell. It makes no sense how instantly bloodied he is until we see the barb sticking from the wire that encases him. I know it immediately. It decorated the top of the fence around twelve. As I call to him not to move, I gag on the smell of the blackness, thick, tar-like. The wave has crested and begun to fall. Gale and League One shoot through the front door lock of the corner building and then begin to fire at the cables holding Mitchell's net. Others are restraining PETA now. I lunge back to Boggs, and Holmes and I try to drag him inside the apartment, through someone's pink and white velvet living room, down a hallway hung with family photos, onto the marble floor of a kitchen where we collapse. Castor and Pollux carry in a writhing pita between them. 
Somehow, Jackson gets cuffs on him, but only makes him wilder and they're forced to lock him in a closet. In the living room, the front door slams. People shout. Then footsteps pound down the hall as black waves roar past the building. From the kitchen, we can hear the windows groan and shatter. The noxious tar smell permeates the air. Finnick carries in Masala. League One and Cressida stumble into the room after them, coughing. Gail, I whisper. He's there, slamming the kitchen door shut behind him, choking out one word. Fumes! Castor and Pollux grab towels, aprons to stuff the cracks as Gail reaches into a bright yellow sink. Mitchell? Asks Holmes. League One just shakes her head. Boggs forces the hollow into my hand. His lips are moving, but I can't make out what he's saying. I lean my ear down to his mouth and catch his harsh whisper. Don't trust them. Don't go back. Kill Peter. Do what you came to do. I draw back so I can see his face. What? What, Boggs? Boggs? His eyes are still open, but dead. Pressed in my hand, glued to it by his blood, is the hollow. Peter's feet slamming into the closet door break up the ragged breathing of the others, but even as we listen, his energy seems to ebb. The kicks diminish to an irregular drumming, and then nothing. I wonder if he too is dead. He's gone, Finnick asks, looking down at Boggs. I nod. We need to get out of here, now. We just set off a street full of pods. You can bet they've got us on surveillance tapes. Count on it, says Castor. All the streets are covered by surveillance cameras. I bet they set off the black wave manually when they saw us taping the propo. Our radio communicators went dead almost immediately. Probably an electromagnetic pulse device. But I'll get us back to camp. Give me the hollow. Jackson reaches for the unit, but I clutch it to my chest. No. Boggs gave it to me, I say. Don't be ridiculous, she snaps. Of course, she thinks it's hers. She's second in command. It's true, says Holmes. He transferred the prime security clearance to her while he was dying. I saw it. And why would he do that? demands Jackson. Why, indeed? My head's reeling from the ghastly events of the last five minutes. Boggs mutilated... Dying, dead, Peter's homicidal rage, Michel bloody and netted and swallowed by that foul black wave. I turn to Boggs, very badly needing him alive. Suddenly sure that he, and maybe he alone, is completely on my side. I think of his last orders. Don't trust them. Don't go back. Kill Peter. Do what you came to do. What did he mean? Don't trust who? The rebels? Coin? The people looking at me right now? I won't go back, but he must know I can't just fire a bullet through Peter's head. Can I? Should I? Did Boggs guess that what I really came to do is desert and kill Snow on my own? I can't work out all of this now, so I decide to just carry out the first two orders. To not trust anyone, and to move deeper into the capital. But how can I justify this? 
Make them let me keep the hollow. Because I'm on a special mission for President Coin. I think Boggs is the only one who knew about it. This in no way convinces Jackson. To do what? Why not tell him the truth? It's as plausible as anything I'll come up with. But it must seem like a real mission, not revenge. To assassinate President Snow? Before the loss of life from this war makes our population unsustainable. I don't believe you, says Jackson. As your current commander, I order you to transfer prime security clearance over to me. No, I say. That would be in direct violation of President Coyne's orders. Guns are pointed. Half the squad at Jackson, half at me. Someone's about to die. When Cressida speaks up. It's true. That's why we're here. Plutarch wants it televised. He thinks if we can film the Mockingjay assassinating Snow, it'll end the war. This gives Jackson pause. Then she gestures with her gun toward the closet. And why is he here? There she has me. I can think of no sane reason that Coyne would send an unstable boy programmed to kill me along with such a key assignment. It really weakens my story. Cressida comes to my aid again. Because the two post-games interviews with Caesar Fleckerman were shot in President Snow's personal quarters. Plutarch thinks Peter may be of some use as a guide in a location we've got little knowledge of. I want to ask Cressida why she's lying for me. Why she's fighting for us to go on with my self-appointed mission. Now is not the time. We have to go, says Gale. I'm following Katniss. If you don't want to, head back to camp, but let's move. Holmes unlocks the closet and heaves an unconscious Peter over his shoulder. Ready? Boggs, says League One. We can't take him. He would understand, says Fennec. He frees Boggs' gun from his shoulder and slings the strap over his own. Lead on, soldier Everdeen. I don't know how to lead on. I look at the hollow for direction. It's still activated, but it might as well be dead for all the good that does me. There's no time for fiddling around with the buttons, trying to figure out how to work it. I don't know how to use this. Boggs said that he would help me, I tell Jackson. He said I could count on you. Jackson scowls, snatches the hollow from me, and taps in a command. An intersection comes up. If we go out the kitchen door, there's a small courtyard and then the backside of another corner apartment building. We're looking at an overview of the four streets that meet at the intersection. I try to get my bearings as I stare at the cross-section of the map, blinking with pods in every direction. And those are only the pods that Plutarch knows about. The hollow didn't indicate that the block we just left was mined. It had the black geyser or that net that was made of barbed wire. Besides that, there may be peacekeepers to deal with. Now that they know our position. I bite the inside of my lip, feeling everyone's eyes on me. Put, put on your mask. We're going out the way we came in. Instant objections. I raise my voice over them. If the wave was that powerful, it might have triggered and absorbed other pods in our path. People stop to consider this. Pollux makes a few quick signs to his brother. It may have disabled the cameras as well, Castor translates, coded the lenses. 
Gail props one of his boots on the counter and examines the splatter of black on the toe. Scrapes it off with a kitchen knife from a block on the counter. It's not corrosive. I think it was meant to either suffocate or poison us. Probably our best shot, says League One. Masks go on. Finnick adjusts Peter's mask over his lifeless face. Cressida and League prop up a woozy masala between them. I'm waiting for someone to take the point position when I remember. That's my job now. I push on the kitchen door and meet no resistance. A half-inch layer of the black goo is spread from the living room about three-quarters of the way down the hall. When I gingerly test it with the toe of my boot, I find it has the consistency of a gel. I lift my foot, and after stretching slightly, it springs back into place. I take three steps into the gel and look back. No footprints. It's the first good thing that's happened today. The gel becomes slightly thicker as I cross the living room. I ease open the front door, expecting gallons of the stuff to pour in, but it holds its foam. The pink and orange block seems to have been dipped in a glossy black paint and set to dry. Paving stones, buildings, even the rooftops are coated with the gel. A large teardrop hangs above the street. Two shapes protrude from it. A gun barrel and a human hand. Mitchell. I wait on the sidewalk, staring up at him until the entire group has joined me. If anyone needs to go back, for whatever reason, now is the time, I say. No questions asked. No hard feelings. No one seems inclined to retreat. So I start moving into the capital, knowing we don't have much time. The gel's deeper here. Four to six inches and makes a sucking sound each time you pick up your foot, but it still covers our tracks. The wave must have been enormous, with tremendous power behind it, as it's affected several blocks that lie ahead. And though I tread with care, I think my instinct was right about it triggering other pods. One block is sprinkled with the golden bodies of tracker jackers. They must have been set free only to succumb to the fumes. A little further along, an entire apartment building has collapsed and lies in a mound under the gel. I sprint across the intersections, holding up a hand for the others to wait as I look for trouble. But the wave seems to have dismantled the pods far better than any squad of rebels ever could. On the fifth block, I can tell we've reached the point where the wave began to peter out. The gel's only a half an inch deep, and I can see baby blue rooftops peeking out across the next intersection. The afternoon light has faded, and we badly need to get under cover and to form a plan. I choose an apartment two-thirds of the way down the block. Holmes jimmies the lock, and I order the others inside. I stay on the street for just a minute, watching the last of our footprints fade away, and then close the door behind me. Flashlights built into our guns illuminate a large living room with mirrored walls that throw our faces back at us at every turn. Gail checks the windows, which show no damage, and removes his mask. It's all right. You can smell it, but it's not too strong. The apartment seems to be laid out exactly like the first one we took refuge in. The gel blacks out any natural daylight on the front, but some light still slips through the shutters in the kitchen. Along the hallway are two bedrooms with baths, 
A spiral staircase in the living room leads up to an open space that composes much of the second floor. There are no windows upstairs, but the lights have been left on, probably by someone hastily evacuating. A huge television screen, blank but glowing softly, occupies one wall. Plush chairs and sofas are strewn around the room. This is where we congregate, slump into upholstery, and try to catch our breath. Jackson has her gun trained on Peta, even though he's still cuffed and unconscious, draped across a deep blue sofa where Holmes deposited him. What on earth am I going to do with him? With the crew? With everybody, frankly, besides Gale and Finnick, because I'd rather track down Snow with those two than without them. But I can't lead ten people through the capital on a pretend mission, even if I could read the hollow. Should I... Could I have sent them back when I had the chance? Or was it too dangerous? Both to them personally and to my mission. Maybe I shouldn't have listened to Boggs, because he might have been in some delusional death state. Maybe I should have just come clean, but then Jackson would take over and we'd end up back at the camp. Or I'd have coin to answer to. Just as the complexity of the mess I've dragged everyone into begins to overload my brain, a distant chain of explosions sends a tremor across the room. It wasn't us, Jackson assures us. A good four or five blocks away. Where we left Boggs, says League One. Although no one has made a move toward it, the television flares to life, emitting a high-pitched beeping sound, bringing half of our party to its feet. It's all right, calls Cressida. It's just an emergency broadcast. Every capital television is automatically activated for it. There we are on screen, just after the bomb took out Boggs. A voiceover tells the audience what they are viewing as we try to regroup. As we react to the black gel shooting from the street, lose control of the situation, we watch the chaos that follows until the wave blots out the cameras. The last thing we see is Gale, alone on the street, trying to shoot through the cables that hold Mitchell aloft. The reporter identifies Gale, Finnick, Boggs, Peta, Cressida, and me by name. There's no aerial footage. Boggs must have been right about their hovercraft capacity, says Castor. I didn't notice this, but I guess it's the kind of thing a cameraman picks up on. Coverage continues from the courtyard behind the apartment where we took shelter. Peacekeepers line the roof across from our former hideout. Shells are launched into the row of apartments, setting off the chain of explosions that we heard, and the building collapses into rubble and dust. Now we cut to a live feed. A reporter stands on the roof with the peacekeepers. Behind her, the apartment block burns. Firefighters try to control the blaze with water hoses. We are pronounced dead. Finally, a bit of luck, says Holmes. I guess he's right. Certainly it's better than having the capital in pursuit of us, but I just keep imagining how this will be playing back in 13. Where my mother and Prim, Hazel and the kids, Annie, Hamish, the whole lot of people from 13 think they've just seen us die. My father? He just lost my sister, and now? Says League One. We watch as they play the footage over and over. Revel in their victory, especially over me. Break away to do a montage of the Mockingjay's rise to rebel power. 
I think they've had this part prepared for a while because it seems pretty polished. And then go live, so a couple of reporters can discuss my well-deserved violent end. Later, they promise, Snow will make an official statement. The screen fades back to a glow. The rebels made no attempt to break in during the broadcast, which leads me to believe they think it's true. If that's so, we really are on our own. So, now that we're dead, what's our next move? asks Scale. Isn't that obvious? No one even knew Pete had regained consciousness. I don't know how long he's been watching, but by the look of misery on his face, long enough to see what happened on the street. How he went mad, tried to bash my head in, and hurled Mitchell into the pod. He painfully pushes himself up into a sitting position and directs his words to Gale. Our next move is to kill me. I see that Neens and Proteus Spade have picked up on it. <laughs> on my on my secret Jackson plot. Pretty Spade says, okay, what? I do not understand why we are killing PETA now. Um, this is PETA making this request. Uh, and uh, if you want to understand a bit more about why this has come up, why he's why he's requesting this now, um, well, we're going to be finding out in moments, I promise you. And so, I'm not going to go into it too much. <laughs> hey, folks, it is great to have you here. Neens, Proteus Spade, Hogwarts Hippie, uh, let's see, Mellow, Orly Rose, y'all. I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, I hope you're enjoying today. I certainly am. And I hope that you will head on over to Discord. We've got one more chapter to read tonight. This is the uh, this is the, the second of three chapters that we're going to read this evening. Um, we've got chapter 21 coming up next. But first, I'm going to take a quick break, a quick five-minute break, um, just to uh, give myself a, a little bit of a rest, give the voice an old rest, fill up my water, all that good stuff. Um, but as I'm gone, I'm going to leave you with a chatter break question, something to talk about here. Uh, and you know what? It seems sensible because we are so close to having the full discussion about it. I'll make it simple. PETA has just said the words in response to the question, what's our next move? PETA has just said, isn't it obvious? Our next move is to kill me. Why? And how would the group react? Chatterbreak question. See you in five minutes. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. It is good to have you all here. All right, my good people, welcome back. It is grand to have you all here. Um, and I'm seeing some people getting in on this discussion. I love this. Uh, I am seeing, I mean, Hogwarts Hippie, Jade Dragon, Mellow Player, Orly Rose, uh, Pretty Spade, Monkey, Neens. 
Y'all, y'all getting in there. I love this. Okay, fantastic. So, question is, Peter says this thing. Peter says our next move is to kill me. Why? Why does he say this? Why does he say this? Um, Orly Rose says, uh, excuse me, Neen says, I totally read these and have forgotten most of these books. <laughs> Jade Dragon says, I think Peter realizes how volatile he is, and it would be dangerous for her to keep him with her. Mellow Player says, I'm pretty sure Peter had murder on his mind this whole chapter, but never acted on it because they would kill him before he got a chance to strike, P uh, to strike Katniss again. Um... Certainly. Let me see what else we got here. Hogwarts Hippie says, I mean, honestly, I think many of them will be all for killing Peter. Just uh, so much has happened and he cannot be trusted. I don't think Katniss will agree, though. I need answers from this next chapter. Mello says, and I think, and I guess he's thinking, uh, might as well kill me now while I haven't harmed anyone. Indeed. Monkey says, uh, it's fine. We've got enough time to have a full psychiatric treatment with them. Mm -hmm. Nervous laugh. <laughs> Neen says, uh, how would it look to the different sides of this war if Peter died by the hands of the resistance, I wonder? A good question. Um, let me see. I just gotta, I gotta read through these pretty quick because I'm trying to catch up with chat. Um, let me see. Uh, and then we get into the question of why send him here in the first place. Uh, and, and an excellent question that is. So, I think y'all have some excellent points here. Gale, nope, that's not it. Peter is recognizing how volatile he is. He sort of recognizes like, if we want this mission to succeed, do I have a place in this? Um, he did try to just beat Katniss. Like he, he tried to get her. Um, would he have stopped? We can speculate, but I think probably not. In addition to that, he was responsible for the death of a member of the team um, after pushing uh, Mitchell. So he is dangerous. But, I will add to this, that he realizes he is dangerous, and his the solution is his mind is not, so let me off the leash. His solution in his mind is to eliminate the threat that is himself. Which means that somewhere deep in him, he knows that although he feels violent, although he, he gets these urges to, to do violence against Katniss and whoever else, he recognizes these are not genuine or positive impulses this isn't this isn't something this isn't a, a mission that he has uh some sort of uh moral grounds for he knows somewhere deep in there he knows that yeah he wants to hurt katniss but that he shouldn't be allowed to All right, there we go, folks. Let's talk a quick bit of review. We've just had our chatter break. We are launching into our third and final chapter for today. Don't forget, folks, my name is Sam. This is Sidecar Stories. And if you want to find out more about this channel, and more importantly, uh, if you want to share a link around, linktree slash sidecar stories, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash sidecar stories. That's the link to follow for Discord and stuff. And more importantly, that is the link to share with folks. Let's get into some review. So, Katniss is um, uh, with this star squad. They're, they've been tasked with this, you know, fairly silly little uh, propo. They need something a little bit more flashy, but it quickly gets dark when Boggs steps on an unmarked landmine. 
Bugs, before dying, uh, gives the hollow over to Katniss. Not his second-in-command, uh, Jackson, but over to soldier Everdeen. We're not totally sure why he would do this, but he does say something very mysterious. Don't trust them. Don't go back. Kill PETA. Do what you came here to do. All four of those things, and any one of those things on their own, would be kind of crazy. But all four of them together is absolutely maddening. Why would he say this? Why would he transfer the Hollow not to his second-in-command, but to Katniss? Well, the bomb that kills Boggs is not the only trap to go off. And a wave of this tar, I'm imagining it like a jet black uh, elephant toothpaste. And if you want to know what elephant toothpaste is, go ahead and uh, uh, check it out on YouTube. Uh, it is not what it sounds like, if you've never heard of this before. Um, but I think the as these traps roll in, PETA uh, loses his mind a little bit. He gets away from himself, and he briefly tries to kill Katniss. Um, he pushes one of the other soldiers, and that soldier ends up in a trap and dying out in uh, out in this tidal wave of this black tar stuff. They end up inside an apartment, hiding out. Some people are injured. Boggs is dead. Mitchell is dead. And they decide they're going to head back. Katniss is in charge, even though Jackson does not like that. Katniss is in charge, uh, and she says, any of you who want to head back, do so now. But I'm on a secret mission from President Coyne. I'm supposed to assassinate President Snow to end the loss of life before we lose just by attrition. Hmm. Well, it's not true, but... Cressida, the director, for some reason, uh, sort of comes to her aid in this lie, and the group decides to follow her. She decides, in an unpopular decision, to head back the way that they came, because it's going to cover up their tracks. And so, they head back the way that they came, past the bodies of those that they left behind, and they are now hiding out uh, away from the scene of the all of the explosions. Um, additional explosions rock through, and the Capitol is showing footage that, that they claim means... The entire squad has died, and the, the leader of the rebellion is now dead. And Gail asks, what's our next move? To which Peta, now back in his own senses, responds, well, our next step is obvious, isn't it? We kill me. Chapter 21. That makes two requests for Peter's death in less than an hour. Don't be ridiculous, says Jackson. I just murdered a member of our squad, shouts Peter. 
You pushed him off of you. You couldn't have known that he would trigger the net at that exact same spot, says Fennec, trying to calm him down. Who cares? He's dead, isn't he? Tears begin to run down Peter's face. I didn't know. I've never seen myself like that before. Katniss was right. I'm the monster. I'm the mo- I'm the one that snow's turned into a weapon. It's not your fault, Peter, says Finnick. You can't take me with you. It's only a matter of time before I kill someone else. Peter looks around at our conflicted faces. Maybe you think it's kinder to just dump me off somewhere and let me take my chances, but that's the same thing as handing me over to the capital. Do you think you'd be doing me a favour by sending me back to Snow? Peter, back in Snow's hands, tortured and tormented until no bits of his former self will ever emerge again. For some reason, the last stanza to the hanging tree starts running through my head. The one where the man wants his lover dead rather than have her face the evil that awaits her in the world. Are you coming to the tree? Wear a necklace of rope side by side with me. Strange things did happen here. No stranger it would be if we met up at midnight in the hanging tree. I'll kill you before that happens, says Gail. I promise. Peter hesitates, as if considering the reliability of this offer, and then shakes his head. It's no good. What if you're not there to do it? I I want one of those poison pills like the rest of you've got. Nightlock. There's one pill back at camp in its special slot in the sleeve of my Mockingjay suit, but there's another in the breast pocket of my uniform. Interesting that they didn't issue one to Peter. Perhaps Coyne thought he might take it before he had an opportunity to kill me. It's unclear if Peter means to finish himself off now, to spare us having to murder him, or only if the capital took him prisoner again. In the state he's in, I expect it would be sooner rather than later. It would certainly make things easier for the rest of us, not to have to shoot him. It would certainly simplify the problem of dealing with his homicidal episodes. I don't know if it's the pods or the fear or watching bogs die, but I feel the arena all around me. It's as if I've never left, really. Once again, I'm battling not only for my own survival, but for Peter's as well. How satisfying, how entertaining it would be for Snow to have me kill him. To have Peter's death on my conscience for whatever is left of my life. It's not about you, I say. We're on a mission, and you're necessary to it. I looked at the rest of the group. You think we might find some food back here? Besides the medical kits and the cameras, we have nothing but our uniforms and our weapons. Half of us stay to guard PETA or keep an eye out for Snow's broadcast, while the others hunt for something to eat. Masala proves most valuable because he lived in a near replica of this apartment and knows where people would be most likely to stash food. Like how there's a storage space concealed by a mirrored panel in the bathroom or how easy it is to pop out the ventilation screen in the hallway. So even though the kitchen cupboards are bare, we find over 30 canned goods and several boxes of cookies. The hoarding disgusts the soldiers raised in 13. Isn't this illegal? says League One. On the contrary, in the capital you'd be considered stupid not to do it, says Masala. 
Even before the call to quell, people were starting to stock up on scarce supplies. While other people went without, says League One. Right, says Masala. That's how it works here. Fortunately, or we wouldn't have dinner, says Gale. Everyone grab a can. Some of our companies seem reluctant to do this, but it's as good a method as any. I'm really not in the mood to divvy up everything into eleven equal parts, factoring in age, body weight, physical output. I poke around in the pile, about to settle on some cod chowder when Peter holds out a can to me. Here. I take it, not knowing what to expect. The label reads, Lamb Stew. I press my lips together at the memories of rain dripping through stones my inept attempts at flirting, and the aroma of my favorite capital dish in the chilly air. So some part of it must still be in his head, too. How happy, how hungry, how close we were when that picnic basket arrived outside our cave. Thanks. I pop open the top. It even has dried plums. I bend the lid and use it as a makeshift spoon, scooping a bit into my mouth. Now this place tastes like the arena, too. We're passing around a box of fancy cream-filled cookies when the beeping starts again. The seal of Pan Am lights up on the screen and remains there while the anthem plays. And then they begin to show images of the dead, just like they did with the tributes in the arena. They start with the four faces of our TV crew followed by Boggs, Gale, Finnick, Pita, and me. Except for Boggs, they don't bother with the soldiers from 13, either because they have no idea who they are, or because they know they won't mean anything to the audience. And the man himself appears, seated at his desk, a flag draped behind him, the fresh white rose gleaming in his lapel. I think he might have recently had more work done, because his lips are puffier than usual, and his prep team really needs to use a lighter hand with the blush. Snow congratulates the peacekeepers on a masterful job, honors them for ridding the country of the menace called the Mockingjay. With my death, he predicts a turning of the tide in the war, since the demoralized rebels have no one left to follow. And what was I, really? A poor, unstable girl with a small talent with a bow and arrow. Not a great thinker, not a mastermind of the rebellion, merely a face plucked from the rabble because I had caught the nation's attention with my antics in the games. But necessary, so very necessary, because the rebels have no real leader among them. Somewhere in District 13, BD hits a switch, because now it's not President Snow, but President Coyne who's looking at us. She introduces herself to Pan Am, identifies herself as the head of the rebellion, and then gives my eulogy. Praise for the girl who survived the seam and the Hunger Games, and then turned a country of slaves into an army of freedom fighters. Dead or alive, Katniss Everdeen will remain the vase of this rebellion. If you ever waver in your resolve, think of the Mockingjay, and in her you will find the strength you need to rid Panem of its oppressors. I had no idea how much I meant to her, I say, which brings a laugh from Gale and questioning looks from the others. 
Up comes a heavily doctored photo of me looking beautiful and fierce with a bunch of flames flickering behind me. No words, no slogan. My face is all they need now. Beatty gives the reins back to a very controlled snow. I have the feeling the president thought the emergency channel was impenetrable and someone will end up dead tonight because it was breached. Tomorrow morning, when we pull Katniss Everdeen's body from the ashes, we will see exactly who the Mockingjay is. A dead girl who could save no one, not even herself. Seal, anthem, and out. Except that you won't find her, says Finnick to the empty screen, voicing what we're probably all thinking. The grace period will be brief. Once they dig through the ashes and come up with missing eleven bodies, they'll know we escaped. We can get a head start on them at least, I say. Suddenly, I'm so tired. All I want to do is lie down on a nearby green plush sofa and go to sleep. To cocoon myself in a comforter made of rabbit fur and goose down. Instead, I pull out the hollow and insist that Jackson talk to me through the most basic commands, which are really about entering the coordinates of the nearest map grid intersections, so I can at least begin to operate the thing myself. As the hollow projects our surroundings, I feel my heart sink even further. We must be moving closer to crucial targets, because the number of pods has noticeably increased. How can we possibly move forward into this bouquet of blinking lights without detection? We can't. And if we can't, we are trapped like birds in a net. I decide it's best not to adopt some sort of superior attitude when I'm with these people, especially when my eyes keep drifting onto that green sofa. So I say, any ideas? Why don't we start by ruling out impossibilities, says Finnick. The street is not a possibility. The rooftops are just as bad as the street, says League One. We may still have a chance to withdraw and go back the way that we came, says Holmes. But that would mean a failed mission. A pang of guilt hits me since I've fabricated said mission. It was never intended for all of us to go forward. You just had the misfortune to be with me. Yeah, well, that's a moot point now. We're with you says Jackson. So we can't stay put. We can't move up. We can't move laterally. I think that leaves one option. Underground, says Gale. Underground, which I hate, like mines and tunnels in 13. Underground where I dread dying, which is stupid because even if I die above ground, the next thing they'll do is bury me underground anyway. The hollow can show subterranean as well as street level pods. I see that when we go above ground, the clean, dependable lines of the street plan are interlaced with a twisting, turning mess of tunnels. The pods look less numerous, though. Two doors down, a vertical tube connects our row of apartments to the tunnels. To reach the tube compartment, we'll need to squeeze through a maintenance shaft that runs the length of the building. We can enter the shaft through the back of the closet space on the upper floor. Okay, then. Let's make it look like we've never been here. We erase all signs of our stay, send the empty cans down a trash chute, pocket the full ones for later, flip sofa cushions smeared with blood, wipe traces of gel from the tiles. 
There's no fixing the latch on the front door, but we lock a second bolt, which will at least keep the door from swinging open on contact. Finally, there's only Peta to contend with. He plants himself on the blue sofa, refusing to budge. I'm not going. I'll either disclose your position or hurt someone else. Those people will find you, says Finnick. Well, then leave me a pill. I'll only take it if I have to, says Peter. That's not an option. Come on, says Jackson. Or what? You'll shoot me, says Peter. We'll knock you out and drag you with us, says Holmes. Which will both slow us down and endanger us. Stop being noble. I don't care if I die. He turns to me, pleading now. Katniss, please. Don't you see I want to be out of this? The trouble is, I do see. Why can't I just let him go? Slip him a pill. Pull the trigger. Is it because I care too much about Peta or too much about letting Snow win? Have I turned him into a piece in my private games? That's despicable. But I'm not sure it's beneath me. If it's true, it would be kindest to kill Peta here and now. But for better or for worse, I am not motivated by kindness. We're wasting time. Are you coming voluntarily, or do we have to knock you out? Peter buries his face in his hands for a few moments and then rises to join us. Should we free his hands? asks League One. No! Peter growls at her, drawing his cuffs in close to his body. No, I echo. But I want the key. Jackson passes it over without a word. I slip it into my pants pocket, where it clicks against the pearl. When Holmes pries open the small metal door to the maintenance shaft, we encounter another problem. There's no way the insect shells will be able to fit through the narrow passage. Castor and Pollux remove them and detach emergency backup cameras. Each one is the size of a shoebox and probably works about as well. Masala can't think of anywhere better to hide the bulky shells, so we end up dumping them in the closet. Leaving such an easy trail to follow frustrates me, but what else can we do? Even going single file, holding our packs and gear out to the side, it's a tight fit. We sidestep our way past the first apartment and break into the second. In this apartment, one of the bedrooms has a door marked utility instead of a bathroom. Behind the door is the room with the entrance to the tube. Masala frowns at the wide circular cover, for a moment returning to his own fussy world. That's why no one ever wants the center unit. Workmen coming and going whenever, and no second bath. But the rent is considerably cheaper. Then he notices Finnick's amused expression and adds, Never mind. The tube covers simple to unlatch. A wide ladder with rubber treads on the steps allow for a swift, easy descent into the bowels of the city. We gather at the foot of the ladder, waiting for our eyes to adjust to the dim strips of lights breathing in the mixture of chemicals, mildew, and sewage. Pollux, pale and sweaty, reaches out and latches onto Castor's wrist, like he might fall over if there isn't someone to steady him. My brother worked down here after he became an Avox, says Castor. Of course. Who else would they get to maintain these dank, evil-smelling passages lined with pods? It took five years before we were able to buy his way up to ground level. Didn't see the sun once. Under better conditions, 
on a day with fewer horrors and more rest, someone would surely know what to say. Instead, we all stand there for a long time, trying to formulate a response. Finally, Peter turns to Pollux. Well, then you just became our most valuable asset. Castor laughs, and Pollux manages a smile. We're halfway down the first tunnel when I realize what was so remarkable about the exchange. Peter sounded like his old self, the one who could always think of the right thing to say when nobody else could. Ironic, encouraging, a little funny, but not at anyone's expense. I glance back at him as he trudges along under his guards, Gale and Jackson, his eyes fixed on the ground, his shoulders hunched forward. So dispirited. But for a moment, he was really there. Peter called it right. Pollux turns out to be worth ten hollows. There's a simple network of wide tunnels that directly correspond to the main street plan above, underlying the major avenues and cross streets. It's called the Transfer, since small trucks use it to deliver goods around the city. During the day, its many pods are deactivated, but at night, it's a minefield. However, hundreds of additional passages, utility shafts, train tracks, drainage tubes form a multi-level maze. Pollux knows details that would lead to disaster for a newcomer, like which offshoots might require gas masks or have live wires or rats the size of beavers. He alerts us to the gush of water that sweeps through the sewers periodically, anticipates the time the Avoxes will be changing shifts, leads us into damp, obscure pipes to dodge the nearly silent passage of cargo trains. More importantly, he's got knowledge of the cameras. There aren't many down in this gloomy, misty place except in the transfer, but we keep well out of the way. Under Pollux's guidance, we make good time. Remarkable time, if you compare it to our above-ground level. After about six hours, fatigue takes over. It's three in the morning, so I figure we still have a few hours before our bodies are discovered missing. They search through the rubble, the whole block of buildings, in case we try to escape through the shafts, and then the hunt begins. When I suggest we rest, no one objects. Pollux finds a small, warm room humming with machines loaded with levers and dials. He holds up his fingers to indicate we must be gone in four hours. Jackson works out a guard schedule, and since I'm not on the first shift, I wedge myself into the tight space between Gale and League One and go right to sleep. It seems like only ten minutes later when Jackson shakes me awake, tells me I'm on watch. It's six o'clock, and in one hour we must be on our way. Jackson tells me to eat a can of food and keep an eye on Pollux, who's insisted on being on guard the entire night. He can't sleep down here. I drag myself into a state of relative alertness, eat a can of potato and bean stew, and sit against the wall facing the door. Pollux seems wide awake. He's probably been reliving those five years of imprisonment all night. I got out the hollow and managed to input our grid coordinates and scan the tunnels. As expected, more pods are registering the closer we move to the center of the capital. For a while, Pollux and I click around on the hollow, seeing what traps lie where. When my head begins to spin, I hand it over to him and lean back against the wall. I look down at the sleeping soldiers, the crew and friends, and I wonder how many of us will ever see the sun again. When my eyes fall on Peta, whose head rests right by my feet, I see he's awake. 
I wish I could read what's going on in his mind. That I could go in and untangle the mess of lies. Then I settle for something I can accomplish. Have you eaten? I ask. The slight shake of his head indicates he hasn't. I open a can of chicken and rice soup and hand it to him, keeping the lid in case he tries to slit his wrists with it or something. He sits up and tilts the can, chucking back the soup without really bothering to chew it. The bottom of the can reflects the lights from the machines, and I remember something that's been itching at the back of my mind since yesterday. Peter, when you asked about what happened to Darius and Lavinia, and Boggs told you it was real, you said you thought so? Because there was nothing shiny about it. What do you mean? <sighs> I don't really know how to explain it, he says to me. In the beginning, everything was just complete confusion. Now I can sort certain things out. I think there's a pattern emerging. The memories they altered with the tracker jack of in them have this strange quality about them. Like they're too intense or the images aren't stable. You remember what it was like when we were stung? Trees shattered. There were giant coloured butterflies. I fell into a pit of orange bubbles. I think about it. Shiny orange bubbles. Right, but nothing about Darius or Lavinia was like that. I don't think they'd given me any venom yet. Well, that's good, isn't it? I ask. If you can separate the two, you can figure out what's true. Yeah, and if I could grow wings, I could fly. Only people can't grow wings. Real or not real? Real, I say. People don't need wings to survive. Mocking Jays do. He finishes the soup and returns the can to me. In the fluorescent light, the circles under his eyes look like bruises. There's still time. You should sleep. Unresisting, he lies back down, but just stares at the needle on one of the dials as it twitches from side to side. Slowly... As I would with a wounded animal, my hand stretches out and brushes a wave of hair from his forehead. He freezes at my touch, but doesn't recoil. So I continue to gently smooth back his hair. It's the first time I've voluntarily touched him since the arena. You're still trying to protect me. Real or not real, he whispers. Real? I answer. It seems to require more explanation. Because that's what you and I do? Protect each other? After a minute or so, he drifts off to sleep. Shortly before seven, Pollux and I move along with the others, rousing them. There are the usual yawns and sighs that accompany waking, but my ears are picking up something else, too almost like a uh, hissing. Perhaps it's only the steam escaping a pipe or far-off whoosh of one of the trains. I hush the group to get a better read on it. There's a hissing, yes, but it's not one extended sound, more like multiple exhalations that form words. A single word, echoing through the tunnels. One word, one name repeated over and over again. 
There it is, my fine folks. Everybody? I hope you're doing well. Um... I don't know if, uh, I don't know if y'all are feeling ready for these chapters, but these are some hard hitters. Right? Um, uh, let's see. Sparkle Lovegood says, I totally thought that was the end of the chapter. Orly Rose says, man, this chapter is playing on my emotions like a harp string. <sighs> Paul Gritzippy says, well, raise your hand if you knew that would be a, sh a cliffhanger. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> Y'all, I hope you've enjoyed today. I know I certainly have. Um, this is a very busy week for me, y'all. Um, I've had a few of those. <laughs> I know I say that like every other week, it seems like. But uh, yeah, uh, tomorrow I'm going to be... Um, let me see. Tomorrow I'm going to have um, uh, a bit of last-minute prep. And then on Saturday I'm running this one-shot for kids on bikes. Um, next week I'm gonna have some family in town. I don't, it's not gonna interrupt our Thursday, certainly, and I don't think it's gonna interrupt our Wednesday either, but that one I'm not positive about. Um, but, uh, yeah, our, our, our schedule I think should be pretty much unadulterated. Uh, I wanna say that they're getting in, it's like Sunday through Tuesday. Um, but I've got some family in town, that'll be a good time. Uh, but yeah, uh, busy stuff. Um, <laughs> they were indeed intense, Luis. Yes, absolutely. Uh, Jade says, "Dang cliffhangers!" Yeah, no kidding, right, Jade? Um, yeah, we've had uh, we've had some stuff going on here. We've had some stuff, y'all. Do not forget, we've got some fun stuff coming up. Um, we have got our our soft opening. Uh, remember, your hint is airship. We're going to be opening up a an RP server for the Realms of Recidus. It is our own world that we have been developing out for quite a long time, and I want to see what characters y'all have. Uh, <laughs> Orly Rose says, my artificer is squealing. I am really excited for it, uh, and I know it's probably going to start like relatively small, um, and that's all right. Uh, we're going to we're gonna have a good time in there. Um, my plan for that is to uh, have descriptions of all these places. Uh, I want it to be even more immersive than a wiki could be, because uh, I want you to be able to be there and like ask questions about certain places. I want you to be able to explore, even if even if you're not there with anyone else, um, you know, to be able to explore over time. I uh, I run these things called faction turns, which is a, a special system that I use to um, determine what is going on elsewhere in the world here. I'm going to be posting world events uh, from our world in there so that y'all can be adventuring with the same set of events that we're adventuring with on Wednesdays. Um, I'm going to be doing, I don't know how frequently yet, but I plan to do full adventures with y'all. I want to do you know, full adventures with teams made up of people from chat. I think that would be a ton of fun. Um, your very own characters. So I want to run these things directly for you. And all of this is going to be happening in an RP server uh, for the Realms of Recidus. Like I said, soft opening two weeks on the 17th. That's a Wednesday. Um, and then uh, that is when I'm going to be opening to a small section of it to test out some of the pieces. And then I'll be opening it to the larger full Realms of Recidus server uh, it's going to be a ton of fun. I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm super excited. Uh, also, I hope y'all are going to get excited for our next book series here. This is our final little announcement. Um, I'll be putting this on social media as well, but I love to tell my streams first. Folks, our next series for Flying Sidecar will be The Lord of the Rings. It eked out just, 
just barely in front of the second place, which I believe was Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, and those two, I think, were they had a sizable lead. But I want to say it's very encouraging to me that we had so many people vote in this one. Uh, we had tons of people vote in this uh, this particular vote here, and I'm really thankful for that. It means that y'all are interested. It means y'all are are uh, keeping up with it, and so I really appreciate it. I'm really excited. Um, if y'all are wondering, like, you know what? Lord of the Rings seems like fun. Well, I hope you come hang out. I have already read uh, The Hobbit. So if y'all are, um, it, this is not necessarily something that I suggest. I wouldn't say like, you definitely gotta read The Hobbit before Lord of the Rings. They're intended for different audiences. They are different stories. They're different styles. Um, so they're very, very different things. I would not say that it is like a necessary prequel to Lord of the Rings, but I have read it. I have read The Hobbit. If you would like to find that, you can use the playlists command and that will bring up the playlist link. Linktree slash SCS playlists. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash SCS playlists. Uh, and of course, if you want to find uh, our Discord, if you want to find all the fantastic places that we hang out during the week, but look, it's mostly the Discord. Uh, head on over to Linktree slash Sidecar Stories. Uh, and finally, good folks, that is the link to follow, but also the link to share. And if you want to share that over to other folks, please do so. Uh, it really is one of the most helpful things you can do for this channel. Everyone, thank you so very much for being here. It's been grand. I love you all, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.